0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Ajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Mary Rubin. Dr. Mary Rubin is a professor of medieval and early modern history. Her research has ranged across the period 1100 to 1600 through the exploration of themes in the religious culture of Europe. And today she's here to talk to us about a wonderful book called The Middle Ages, a very short introduction published by Oxford University Press. Mary, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be back.
0: Thank you. Uh, there are lots and lots of questions I'd like to ask you, especially about the Middle Ages, because it's one term, one of the most misunderstood terms. So can you briefly tell us the 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 origin of the term Middle Ages, where it comes from, what period of history it covers, and where does the term Dark Ages come from?
1: All very good questions. Uh, these are questions that... Uh, the teachers grapple with. Uh, we, on the one hand, the Middle Ages is something that people have heard of, so you can build on it. On the other hand, most things they've heard about it are somewhat inconceived. So how do you do it? I've actually, in recent years, I don't even use the word medieval to describe the modules that I teach, or hardly. And even in my lectures, I discipline myself. I try to give just year periods and see where we go. With that, you know. So, um, yes, I mean, when you're living through a period, you don't think, oh, I'm living in the Middle Ages. uh, and, And therefore, this term indeed was created later, created in a period that saw itself as not being that medieval. That is, it begins, it becomes current amongst a particular group of scholars in the later 14th century, particularly in Italy particularly those who were associated with um, uh, trying to what they saw as revive the uh, um, both aesthetic and moral and literary standards of antiquity, Greek and Roman antiquity, in some sort of way that made them better, that made them more insightful than what they perceived as uh, centuries and centuries of a middle period, hence media us, middle period, literally middle age, uh, from which they wanted to distinguish themselves. Now, this is a rhetorical flourish of just really a few rather privileged men, but they were tremendously influential. And Moreover, in the 19th century, when uh, European scholars looked back to, as it were, the beacon, founding moment of European culture as being the Renaissance, another very loaded term, rebirth, what does it mean to be reborn, right? In any period, we're very alive. So um, so Renaissance and Middle Ages, as it were, come together. The Renaissance is a rebirth after a middle period of stagnation, of domination, perhaps by the church. Mind you, all these writers were Christians themselves, uh, of, of a sort of detachment from some sort of ideal qualities that were embodied in Greek and Roman knowledge. So it had a very practical side, that is to try and learn the Greek and Roman as best as possible, to try and imitate the styles of writing, the styles of architecture later on, the styles of sculpture, the styles even in painting of some sort of ideal Greco Greek Roman ideal. So it was, it did, it did define the work of a certain group of privileged uh, intellectuals, almost all of them men throughout Europe. It starts in Italy and in the Italian cities and it spread. So we talk about the Norman Renaissance, the Northern Renaissance, sorry, or the, we talk about the Northern Renaissance. We talk about the English Renaissance in the 16th century and so on. It's, it, it ties us down because it's so well established, but it's important, and you're giving me the opportunity to do so, to remember that um, it's just inconceivable that a whole thousand years are without interest, without discovery, without curiosity, and so on. So it's truly a rhetorical flourish that try to say, we are going to do something really interesting now by reconnecting or connecting in a different way with antiquity, because just finally, just to say, but of course, throughout the Middle Ages, there was a constant engagement with the Greek and Roman heritage, which was, of course, conveyed within the very writing of uh, the early Christian fathers. They were all, of course, in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, Ambrose, Augustine, they were all educated exactly in this Greco-Roman world of education, and they wrote their foundational texts about Christianity with those tools to hand. So it's a question of perspective, and uh, throughout the Middle Ages, after all, people copied and recopied and commented on the texts of antiquity, uh, be they Aristotle, uh, be they sort of obviously on the sciences, but also on, on on literary, on the way to write, on grammar. So, uh, yeah, that was a very long answer, but it is a complex issue because it so defines our sel- our sense of a sort of a-, a modernity as opposed to that middle period. And I also think just maybe the truly last comment would be to say that on the whole, our habit of talking about enlightened periods and less enlightened periods usually is not very helpful because those who claim to be enlightened stop in a way scrutinizing themselves in the sort of way that we always must scrutinize ourselves. So just to say the age of enlightenment the 18th century is also the age of slavery. It's also the age of misogyny and so on. But this notion that some new uh, moral and aesthetic dispensation had been developed um, sometimes also sort of allows people to get away with a sort of let's say, um, complacency about the implications of their own cultures in their own times.
0: You've raised a lot of great points. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right that all these these terms are like the inventions of historians, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance. And there was a time that the Middle Ages was vilified, and there was a time you know, during the Romantic period that it was, uh, uh, it was revived. So it's all a matter of perspective, yeah. Um, and uh, in first chapter of your book, you talk about how the Roman Empire was transformed, and I really love that that part because a lot there, there is again this problematic con- uh, conception of the fall of the Roman Empire, as if everything suddenly ended overnight. The Roman Empire fell, and then the Middle Ages started. So, can you talk about the transformation of the Roman Empire by the Germanic uh, tribes?
1: Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't even call them Germanic tribes. I mean, Germanic people, the word tribe is a particular type of social organization, again, very much implicated also in a sort of colonial gaze onto other parts that are outside Europe and then somehow transplanted to this discussion of the Middle Ages. But what I would say is a term that we use readily now in our own political parlance, which is, of course, the movement of people you get shifts in populations. And although we identify, and rightly, a certain coming to the end of a certain type of Roman rule in in the later 5th century, one can look at the movement of peoples and the shift of the emphasis within the empire. We can go back to the 2nd century, the 1st century, and it's the movements of people both from very north, that is sort of the Scandinavian into Europe as it were but also and mostly from from Asia from the east moving in and this is over hundreds of years with a lot of steps along the way and when we think about it as process rather than as overnight cataclysm what of course is interesting then is to think about the idea of influence because the peoples who became closer to came closer to roman provinces through this process, be it from the north, be it from the east, be it from the southeast, um, of course also met Roman institutions. They met Roman law, they met Roman public spaces, they met well, the language itself, and uh, often they were actually co-opted into the Roman system as garrisons on far-flung borders uh, and were sort of integrated. They were sometimes paying tribute to the Roman state in order to settle. So there are all sorts of arrangements that are very far from sort of, um, you know, be my my enemy or my friend, as it were. These are really, really long processes. They're associated also with intermarriage in certain areas. So I think that is how we now more understand that that transformation of of Europe and of the Roman system. And of course there are also set pieces and there are also battles and there is also there are also confrontations around power. And again, we can give those particular dates. But what we definitely find is that by the, by the later 5th century, uh, we have, across Europe, not one unitary system ruled from Rome or from Constantinople, because even the Roman world in the 3rd century started being governed by a Greek sphere, the East and a West Latin sphere. So, We talk uh, of a transformation that gives us then what are sometimes called the successor states. There are various states uh, um, that reflect often the more or less the ethnicities of certain groups as they settled with their own particular languages from the Germanic families, as you said, most of them. And so we get the Franks and we get the Ostrogoths and we get the Visigoths and we get the Alamans, and we get the Burgundians, etc., which, of course, then give us ultimately the political units, some of them even identifiable, of course, in Europe uh, today and groups of families and so on. Now, the one really thing to remember is, the really important thing to remember is that as they became incorporated into the Roman world. They, of course, transformed it, as we've said, but they also very much uh, benefited from and wanted to benefit from all the great things that uh, uh, the Roman system had, its language its ceremonies, the ways it celebrates rulers as great emperors, uh, the liturgies of court, the technology, and so on. So uh, one of my great colleagues, uh, uh, Yitzhak Khan wrote a wonderful book about this period called Roman Barbarians. In order to capture that duality, by the time we're in the fifth, sixth, seventh centuries, they are a true hybrid of certain type of traditional ways of organizing a military elite, yes, and social structure and, and, and customs and kinship customs, but also, and particularly at the elite level, a tremendous amount of, of, of use of, of Roman institutions, and of course, prime amongst them, the church, because they became Christians. They became Christians, and uh, in various particular, the various types of different Christianities, and they incorporated obviously all sorts of interesting rituals that pertain to the pre-Christian past. But nonetheless, they are recognizably Christians without any question.
0: And again, it was a fascinating answer. And you talked about church. So I guess that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is religious life, the model of religious life, especially the model of religious life that was formulated by uh, by by Benedict of Nursia. So what was in the Sixth Century, what was it like? And what was a Benedictine house like? And also it would be great if you could talk about the administration of a monastery as well.
1: Sure. So, uh, um, I mean, like most things, uh, you best understand them by opposing them to what they're not. So clearly, those who chose to live this, what com- what becomes known as monastic life, uh, in this highly uh, articulated and well-defined mode that Benedict of Nursia uh, offered the world in the sixth century, and it was a great success, Benedictinism is still practiced in the world today. Uh, so what is it not? It is not being a Christian at home. It is not being a Christian man who marries and has children and is a Christian. It is a sort of level of perfection, as it were, that is beyond that. Now, when, um, I mean, the ideals of asceticism, of really, really uh, uh, denying your body in order to kill the passions, in order to become that perfect Christian who follows Christ by cultivating the spiritual life, that typified some of the very early followers of Christ, some of the uh, rather amazing sort of athletes of Christianity in the early centuries who went into deserts and went into all sorts of and imposed hardships on themselves in order to prove their perfection. But once Christianity became mass religion, millions and millions converted in the course of the fourth century and then going on, I mean, you had to have some sort of model for like a normal Christian life with a family, with a job, et cetera, et cetera. And that is what had to be formulated. And for some early Christian fathers, it was sort of difficult, you know, can you really endorse sex in marriage? Can you ever endorse sex appropriation? procreation on what terms? But they did. And that is how Christianity could offer itself to the millions, not just to the few. Nonetheless, uh, because of the example of, the, of the, uh, uh, in, in scripture, because of the example of Christ himself, uh, there were always those who wanted to do more and wanted to follow perfection by following in Christ's footsteps. And that would be, of course, celibacy. And it would be a whole lot of stuff that Christ did not practice in his lifetime, as we know it from the Gospels, but seemed to be signs of perfection, getting away, away from normal life, away from the temptations of the city, away um, from whatever might lead you, I mean, money, office, status. So um, there were various experiments and there were early experimenters, uh, particularly in very interesting experimenters in what is Turkey of today, in Cappadocia, in parts of the Greek part of the empire. There were experiments in Gaul, in parts of France of the day. But the model that really, really worked was the one, as you say, uh, developed by Benedict, Benedict of Nursia and exemplified in his um of course, in the great house of Monte Cassino in southern, in southern Italy of today. And the idea there was a sort of moderation. Because the worry is that if you go off into the desert and you try to, you know, mortify your body and concentrate on just the things of God, um, there is a danger this becomes a sort of vain exercise, a sort of a vanity of perfection. Uh, there's nobody who, who, who supervises you. There's nobody tells you if you're if you're destroying your body, if you're leading yourself. I mean, actually harming yourself. And also, uh, the model of Christianity is also a model of worship, right? So how can you do worship when you're on your own? So even in those early examples, say in the Egyptian desert, there was a certain element of. Um, communal living, even if you hid away in a a cave most of the time, that would come together for certain opportunities. But above all in the Benedictine model is, it's much more sustainable if it's resilient, and it's much more sustainable if people get a modicum of what they need. So not starving yourself, but having a modest diet. So not uh, uh, lolling around in bed all day long, but having sufficient sleep to keep you healthy. And above all, most important, the obedience. Because if you have an abbot and you're answerable to an abbot, you have to develop a sort of modesty, a humility, an acceptance of someone who critiques you, who looks over you, and that breaks any sort of uh, self-aggrandizing, egocentric type of indulgence in suffering, if you see what I mean. So the, 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 the oaths are of poverty, of chastity, of staying in one place, not traveling around looking for adventures and whatnot, uh, staying in one place. It's actually the discipline and supervising it all. It's obedientia, the obedience to the abbot, which is absolutely crucial. And the, it, so the idea is that sort of communal life, day in, day out, is actually a greater and more sustainable form of perfection than, uh, you know, sitting at the top of a column and people come and admire you and talk to you and make much of you and do sort of saint tourism or, or, you know, it's, 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 it's more routine, it's more mundane, but it's actually tough to sustain so so of course in order to sustain this you had to have actual institutions so you actually had something that supports you and of course in six, sixth century europe you wealth is in the land so you have to have an endowment so that connects superherbs to landowners aristocrats who will found give you the land that you need give you the communities of serfs who work on your land and that brings us to the point of administration which you raised because of course a monastery becomes like a big factory of 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 of, of um, a holy living, but there are um, uh, you know you've got your lands, you've got the serfs on the land, they have to be managed. You've got parish churches on your land, you have uh, to have the produce of your field marketed and sold. You have to have a whole lot of agents involved. So it they, they, these really become these great sort of rural sort of uh, 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 of factories of both producing food, but also producing holiness, which attracted maybe not heirs, maybe not first sons, but definitely sons of aristocratic families. And they, as they entered, would notionally take their chunk or their portion of their inheritance and bring it into as a founding sort of contribution to the institution that will, for the rest of their lives, support them. It became quite common to actually offer children already, to offer at a very young age. It's called child oblation, in which case, of course, the parents reach an agreement with the monastery as to what is the appropriate sort of dowry, as it were, uh, to bring as they marry Christ. And of course, this is also true of women. There are, on the whole, uh, nunneries are fewer in number, and on the whole, less well endowed in some parts of Europe, less well endowed on average, but there are also for the same reasons, moral reasons, but also sort of social reasons, we might say, what do we do with our daughter who will not be married off with a big dowry? We can send her to a nunnery. But also there's a lot of um, there's a lot of prestige associated with joining you know having a child in a, in a monastery or a nunnery. And on top of it all, of course, if you have a monk or nun as a relative, They will pray for your soul, and that's very important. Uh, So uh, this became a sort of package that brought together religion, uh, agrarian life, social life, family life, in a very interesting, neat package.
0: Um, There is another enduring myth about the Middle Ages, which is... Repeated all the time, and that is about the domination of church. Church dominated every single aspect of life in the Middle Ages. But again, in your book, you talk about uh, uh, Gregory the Seventh. you know, who inspired new theological, legal, and political activities. It would be great if you could talk about that and also tell us if it's true or not that church and religious life dominated every aspect of life in the Middle Ages. Was it simply uh, an authoritative religious institution or not?
1: Um, well, authority is very much part of it. And indeed, Gregory the Seventh, who's pope in the uh, second half of the 11th century, uh, himself a monk, I should say, also in his origins. So he brought that sort of quite ambitious vision of what a Christian society should be. I mean, he, in his age, for a host of political reasons, he was confronted with the fact that Exactly because of the dependence of religious institutions, to a large extent, on the aristocracy that founded them and that um, and that sustained them and that fed them with their sons and daughters, um, and for a whole lot of other interesting reasons, uh, there seemed to be uh, throughout Europe a situation where, although uh, everyone, you know, the normative religion is Christianity, nonetheless, lay people seem to be really involved in a lot of issues to do. With the spiritual, with the church, which is supposed to be a spiritual institution, and the most flagrant of it all is, to, to his mind, that the emperor, that is the ruler of the great Holy Roman Empire, which is basically, you know, from France to, to, to Austria of today, and you know, the whole center of Europe, much more than just Germany of today, um, that um, he actually appointed his bishops. Bishops. What do you mean, bishops? are the successors to the apostles. What does it mean that an emperor, a mere mortal, um, appoints them? Now, of course, the emperor wants to appoint his bishops because bishops also were great landholders and great princes and sons of aristocratic families. Of course, this is a totally political issue, that, and it's also the custom. So Gregory Seventh was quite revolutionary in claiming things have gone awry you might even say he had a medieval view of the Middle Ages as a period of decline since early Christianity in early Christianity. The church was run by the apostles; they were it, and they were the success they were the ones who knew Christ who carried the message message over, and then every apostle founded a cathedral, a sort of a bishop, a bishopric, and every bishopric thus continued, so really the bishops are the successors of the apostles, they should not be appointed by rulers. And he extended this, he extended this to a whole vision of the church encapsulated in his slogan, which in Latin goes, Libertas Ecclesiae, the liberty of the church, that the church should be free from interference. Its role is so important. The spiritual uh, dimension is so much more important than, and, and, and worthy than the secular one. But it seems obvious. And in the church, this has been this sliding away. So he tries to change the the goalposts. He was sort of, in that sense, quite revolutionary, even if he, he, he cast it as, oh, I'm just going back to the beginning how it was. I'm just... A re- re- going back, but in fact he was revolutionary, and there were lots of political struggles until this vision sort of realized itself over the next hundred years. It was just not just not just him, Gregory the Seventh, but those who followed. In every every pope almost had to confront some ruler over these issues, but ultimately by the twelfth century there was a sort of, um, um, and here I come to the question about um, whether it it dominated, the, the, the sort of agreement of of um, of separation of spheres. That is to say, there are certain issues, indeed, where the church and its courts and its laws should be in charge. Uh, Issues to do with what's true religion, what's heresy. Issues to do with the life of the clergy. Issues to do with church property. Issues to do with, for example, the institution of marriage. And there's no more important institution in society than marriage. It touches practically everybody, so, so, really, there was a division of labor between what states and secular rulers could hope to achieve and claim to be their right and what the church was allowed to take care of because of the moral dimension of all these issues, because marriage was a sacrament, so it's in there. Oh, for example, interestingly, testaments and and bequests in wills probate what we would call became the business of the church because it's all done. On at deathbed, often supervised by a priest and so on. So um, and inasmuch as those powers were real because they were about jurisdiction and income from courts, etc., you can say that yes, the church dominated those areas, but it's only dominated in as much as it set the rules. So let's take marriage. Yes, the church set the rules. By the 12th century, canon law is very clear, and throughout the centuries, canon lawyers and theologians refine the ideas, and it's in church courts that say um, the breach of the promise of marriage, adultery, all sorts of things are tried. But the thing is, as we know, people rarely adhere fully, even to a very clearly articulated set of norms. So Your question about domination, yes, the church is the only game in town on all these issues. It's the one. There is no other institution that lays down the laws, but there are social customs. So, for example, on the issue of marriage, yes, the church law is very clear that marriage should be free, that people enter it into freely by their own will. It's an act of faith. But of course, parents are constantly interfering and managing and and, 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 and arranging and whatnot because marriage is also about property and it's about name and it's about genealogy and so on. So it's particularly in the upper classes that, yes, Christian marriage is all very well, it's a very useful framework, it it it, it, it makes marriage sacred, etc. But we also know what we want out of marriage. And so there is constant day-to-day in every family, in every life, on every street, people are struggling between the norms of the church, which, which yes, they're absolute in as much. There is no other game in town except Jews and Muslims in their own communities that have their own autonomies to deal with things like the church does for Christians. But on the other hand, people everywhere are finding ways around, are reinterpreting, are misinterpreting, are breaking rules, etc. But there's no question that from cradle to grave, it's not just that the church lays down the norms. The church also offers what are found to be very useful and highly consoling and extremely uh, uh, um, effective rituals. If you think of, you know, marriage, and death, and charity, and relations between neighbors, and celebrating the seasons of the year, etc. That's all church rituals. So yeah, that's a very long answer, but it's a complicated business. But what one might say is that by the 12th century in particular, that's where historians are really positive, you know, there is a sort of some sort of concordat, really, between church and state over these issues. Now, in every country, it'll play out through some dramas where all, a king really resents a particular concession. Say, the Beckett affair in England. Uh, the same thing, almost every kingdom went through its own sort of, you know, melodrama around a church and state, particularly around great kings who want their way. They want to marry who they want. They want to divorce a wife, most famously, Henry VIII, of course. In the 16th century, all this canon law did not work because he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn and he wanted a successor son. So, yeah, so uh, it's the total framework, as you say, dominated in its normativity, but in terms of practice, it's the framework for aspiration. uh, And within it, all sorts of life dramas are enacted.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, it's a very complicated issue, and you also provided a very comprehensive answer. Um, Another idea that I'm really interested in, and I did not know that myself before reading your book, was that the idea of Parliament, which is a very democratic institution developed in the Middle Ages, which again counters a lot of those myths of, uh, uh, of that time period. Can you talk about that development of the idea of Parliament? How did it come about?
1: Okay, we well, here I'm going, to slightly, uh, I'm going to slightly maybe disappoint you and remind you that parliamentary rule doesn't have to be democratic in our sense. It is representative. So parliament, going back to the French word parlement, it's about a conversation. It's about an important conversation that, uh, 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 that the ruler has with those most important uh, stakeholders, what we would call stakeholders around him. And it's it's very rarely not a hymn, and uh, that is the aristocracy. That is, as we've just said, the representatives of the church, the bishops, who are also great landowners, and increasingly also representatives of the that the sort of third estate of sort of townspeople, uh, merchants, uh, and towns themselves as entities who have representation as an entity. In the Holy Roman Empire, representation works slightly differently. It's an enormous place with lots of sub-territories that rule themselves, so it works differently. But if we think of England, France, and the the Spanish Cortes, for example, um, these are about representation, but not democratic representation as we understand it. So uh, in that sense, it really, really develops out of the customs that go back, 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 uh, to the sort of landed, martial, what used to be called feudal arrangements of um, uh, "I'm your lord, you're my man," and as my man, you owe me loyalty, but you also owe me good counsel. Uh, it's called auxilium et consilium, help and counsel. So uh, this council. It all sounds very well and very friendly, but of course, if, for example, you're discussing whether to enter a particular treaty with a neighboring entity, or it's, it's usually around big decisions of war and therefore of expenditure, you know, these are the people who are going to deliver for you. These are the people who are going to be fighting along your side. You want to be sure that they're on board. And there can be very heated discussions about priorities in war, priorities in expansion, priorities in uh, a whole lot of activities that this elite group takes on. And so it starts with that very interpersonal, much smaller than a parliament as we think of it, uh, um, consultation. And then as uh, the kingdoms of Europe develop out of those entities, the Kingdom of France, Aragon, Castile, England, Scotland, etc., uh, Denmark, um, Poland, Hungary, uh, all these different kingdoms. So this tradition of consultation with the greatest in the land continues. But also because these are now settled entities, they have uh, centers of administration, they have royal administration, and so on, it becomes routinized. It becomes something that doesn't happen sort of in the king's tent before a battle. It actually happens more regularly. It's con- connected also with um, uh, milestones that have to do with fiscality, with taxation, etc. And basically, Parliament becomes about taxation. Because the more ambitious the state becomes, uh, the more uh, it needs to tax, and the more diverse the economy becomes, as it does in the course of the Middle Ages. It's not just about land, it's also about commerce, it's about finance, etc. You have to capture those potential contributors to the tax base, and they have to be represented, obviously. Parliament also then legislates, and that's important. And it legislates a whole, a whole lot of things. It legislates on, on statutes about about um, uh, commercial activity, about um, how to punish rapists. How I mean, you know, it, it, it then continues to legislate, not just advise, but advise in a way through the legislative process. And that really is the 13th and 14th centuries see the massive development in all these countries of codification. You all of a sudden get texts about how to run parliament, how often it should meet, who should be joined in. Because of course, the king would like to include as many as possible, because if you consult, you can tax. But on the other hand, the aristocracy wants to keep a certain type of privilege of council, which is associated with their social privilege. So now we've inherited this in a way in in Britain right now. There's a big debate about what is House of Lords for and who should be be sitting in it. And in a way, that's a sort of ongoing conversation about who is part of the political nation, what is parliament for, what is consultation for. And that does indeed go back not only to the 13th and 14th centuries most clearly, but also to those earlier customs of consultation that go back, really go way back into the early medieval period between rulers and the men, martial men around them.
0: Uh, th- there is also another myth, I hope I'm not disappointed here, which is about this idea of Middle Ages being completely against, uh, being, 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 let's say, stuck in ignorance, being completely against science. And unfortunately, the, um, the famous uh, trial of uh, Galileo is taken as emblematic of that conflict between church and century. science. Yeah. 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 So, but, but again, we have the development of universities in the Middle Ages. We have development of civil law. Book culture, medicine. Can you talk uh, talk to us a little about uh, the idea of Middle Ages and the development of these new types of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, sciences, and also even monasteries? Because a lot of people tend to think of monasteries as a place of worship, but they were also centers for scholarship as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so um, yes, I know that that perception is there, and quite frankly, Mortaza, I wouldn't like to have to live with medieval medicine right now. Although some of it is very sensible and it's stuff that we, we actually live by, you know, a balanced diet, enough sleep, uh, all sorts of things. But of course, of course, it's a totally different technological age. I mean, you know, it's, it's even, we can't even, it's very, very hard to think about them in, in your head at the same time. But, but one thing they had, and this is again a Greek and Roman heritage. They did not distinguish between arts and sciences at all. They called knowledge, they packaged knowledge into artes, arts. Hence, we get the BA, the Bachelor of Arts. You go to university and in American, some American liberal arts colleges, it's still the case. You actually study a bit of everything. You don't just specialize in history from year one like my students do uh, So, in Britain. So there was a sense in which knowledge is organized in particular ways, and that any educated person, yes, has to learn the three uh, arts of, of, of speech and communication and writing. That is to say, uh, logic, to make a sensible sentence, uh, uh, um, grammar, so you put the words in the right order and you can build something that someone would understand. And rhetoric, that is to say, the art of not just writing something, but making it persuasive and making it stick. So whatever you're talking about, science or history or literature, you actually have to be able to communicate it. Hence, everybody has to have these basic three skills. But at the same time, any educated person should also have arithmetic, should also have geometry, should also have uh, music should also understand looking out into the night sky and to be able to read the sky through an astronomical understanding because the sky and and the system of the planets were understood as absolutely not just foretelling futures but affecting the health of the individual and they were very much related to life on Earth. So again, we may put other types of knowledge into the mix, but they totally understood what we divide alas, into arts and sciences so the two could hardly ever talk to each other, they saw as one system. So already that's that's a pretty impressive whole. And that meant that they thought holistically. So most people, if you ask them, who was Aristotle? Oh, he was a Greek philosopher. True, but he was a Greek scientist. He wrote about procreation. He wrote about uh, uh, um, what we would call not exactly evolution, but the relationship of the different species to each other. He he believed in 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 classifying in a way that we would recognize classifying nature into into entities and how they relate to each other. Uh, so and that was normal. Uh, you get uh, Bede, a monk in northern England, right in the eighth century. He wrote theology, but he very importantly wrote about astronomy. And the calendar, because that's a very practical thing as well. And it's also a very Christian thing, because you need the calendar in order to do the worship. So these are just a few examples how that divide did not exist at the time. That is something that really came later, and I would say as late as the 18th century. I hope I'm right there, but I mean it's still not the case in the 16th, 17th. It begins in the 17th probably, and the, into the 18th. It begins also with a lot more emphasis on experiment in science it, 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 as, a, as a scientific mode of producing knowledge. Okay, now those monasteries we talked about in their libraries, they had Bible, they had Bible commentaries, they had um, the works of the fathers of the church—Augustine, Ambrose, uh, Gregory the Great—but they had a profusion of books of medicine. Can you imagine a monastery tucked away somewhere, away from society? You can't send out for the doctor. You can't call for an ambulance. You have to have local knowledge to help your brothers or sisters, and that is exactly what they appreciate. Very practical books, books on, books on surgery, books on recipe books, what they, medical recipes, how to prepare, how to prepare this. Uh, how to prepare that from what materials, etc. So, and and another thing that they had going for them, they saw well-being, medical well-being, physical well-being as something that is holistic. They didn't think like, oh, take this thing, it's going to fix you, um, like like we do really, uh, or or a lot of people do nowadays. They saw it as holistic. They saw every person. The system that they inherited from antiquity was it's called uh, humoral medicine. And the understanding of a body as a sort of cocktail of influences and propensities that you can affect by, if you tend to be angry and hot-tempered, you should have cooling foods that keep you more sedate. If you are, um, um, you know, you you suffer from sort of colds and and, and, uh, uh, sort of, you know, you produce a lot of kata, for example. You have to have stop having like lettuce and cucumber and so on that are very wet foods. You have to have, they believed, for example, in cure by contraries. Now, of course, not all of it works, but some of it works. But what we see here is an intelligence at work trying to figure things out in a logical manner. Now, at the same time, and we're exactly like that, people also say, even if we don't totally believe that going to a saint will help us, let's give it a go. So if I have a sick child, I try everything, and usually the accounts of miracles at saints' shrines will say, having tried all the doctors and having spent a lot of money trying to cure their child, they ultimately decided to go to the saint, and lo and behold, the saint cured them, cured the child. But the thing is, we have here testimony, that people did actually try ordinary household or neighborhood or calling in a somebody who has some knowledge, which of course is also expensive. But when they say that didn't work. Now, when it, in the text that we have describing miracle tales, this is all written down in order to say, you see, secular medicine doesn't work. You believe in God and you'll be cured. But the truth is it also gives us testimony that people had medical pathways that were the first port of call. And then when they just give up, and we all do it, people who aren't at all religious will go to all sorts of religious cures or panaceas or amulets or whatnot if they're desperate. If they're desperate. And when your child is ill, you'll do anything. So um, obviously, Within the Christian system, and going back to your question about normativity and about domination, obviously the church joined up the belief system also with people's frustrations, desperations, hopes, anxieties around physical well being, and created this whole system of shrines. And often, you know, just getting out of bed and making your way and changing the air and whatnot, and maybe the excitement and maybe all the attention could help people overcome an illness. But, I mean, I don't believe in miracles myself, but this was a pervasive activity that going to the saints in any case is good, because the saints are exemplary individuals, and it's, it's good to go and show your respect, but also cures were being sought. So this is, again, a longish answer by which I'm just trying to say that um, they were just like us, trying to do the best for ourselves and our community and our family and our loved ones within the framework of knowledge that was available. There was definitely, there were people who specialized in medicine in universities, high degrees in medicine. um, uh, Lots of, you know, famous, some universities have had a particular reputation like Montpellier, for example. And so there was a building of knowledge, one on top of the other. Sometimes you read and you say, oh, my God, that's so right. I know a lot about this because I have a PhD student who's writing a wonderful PhD about Caitlin Williams, about um, about how much care was really given in the English household and wh- what, what was expected. What could the household provide in terms of wellness, which is super interesting. So I've learned a lot. But of course, of course, and, and there's, of course, the whole area of surgery, which is, was, was considered a craft, just like butchery. And, uh, you know, you would go and they had books of surgery. They had implements of surgery. It must have been ghastly painful and often infected. But there was a sense in which how you do good surgery, how you go about it, etc., and professional pride and all of that. And quite frankly, in a lot of these areas, not much changed between the period we're talking about and, say, the 18th and early 19th century. So, yeah, I hope I made clear that, of course, medically, we've made tremendous progress. But on the other hand, to just dismiss them as uncurious and unable to think through a problem is absolutely wrong. Mm.
0: Yeah, and when you were talking about uh, humoral theory, I was reminded of my grandma. I'm originally from Iran myself, and I was born in a very small village. So I do remember like my grandma saying that he's this very quick tempered person. It's because of the food you eat, you need to have some food that has a cooling effect on. So that kind of mentality is still well and alive. Uh, but I think uh, we, so. we
1: still do it in a lot of ways. And, it, and yeah. it's true. I mean, you know, and I think um, uh, Vedic medicine is also one about contraries. A lot of systems around the world uh, combine what seems sort of logical with what also with whatever plants they had around them in order to mobilize. Yeah. Mm.
0: Uh I wish we had time to talk to you more about this wonderful book. And I do encourage our listeners to read the book, be amazed, and I'm sure a lot of misconceptions they have will go away simply by reading the book. And there's also a great list of uh, uh other books as further reading that you have included at the back of this book. I've talked to several people about the Middle Ages, and I must tell uh I must say that you're a wonderful historian, you're also a wonderful storyteller. I, I greatly uh enjoyed every minute of this conversation we had. Thank you very Thank much you for talking awesome. to us on your book network
1: it's been my pleasure too. thank you so much murtaza we must do this again on some other sure
0: yeah hopefully for your future work
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you